Chapter 13 The quickest way from one place to another is a straight line, but Quick did not meet the demands of the insane. The van roared through the United Wastes, near a pace that might shake it apart, its engines screamed in agony. There was no letting up. Hell was going to be kicked in the groin. Clouds of dust and frightened exhaust pumped out from beneath the van, leaving behind a large tail of toxic grief. It was not built for this speed. Something had to give. Nothing did. It could be spotted from miles away. The guards fired shots into the air, notifying the others that they were under siege. No one comes at them this fast to talk. It was all hands on deck. Some of them were bruised, some of them were burnt, all of them were tired. The rancid, drug-fueled anarchy that reigned supreme the night before, ending in a crescendo of fire and agony, had left them weak, suspicious, and stupid. Still, they were the colonel's men, and whatever came howling at them now was far less terrifying than the tyrant with the waddle. They wanted revenge. And so every man whose mind was ravaged by a cocktail of vicious, high-powered chemicals, and every man that was ravaged by those men, needed to see the van die. When it was close enough for the guards to notice, it was too late. The van was on fire. Impotent shots rang out of rifles, pistols, and the occasional handmade weapon, but the momentum was too strong. Only God himself could slow this white IRS beast down, and God left the premises when the first bomb fell. Nothing was certain but death and taxes. These two things are not exclusive. The van exploded forward, easily making it past the four-lane wide gate, and careened into the makeshift city hatefully, never once deviating from its straight line. Screams of terror were washed out by screams of rage. The slavers were having none of this. The van rammed into the side of an old concrete building, once used for banking, now used for dog slaughter. Nothing would have survived that crash. The guards stepped towards it tentatively. A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart. Chapter 14 The IRS always knocked on your front door, but this is Armageddon. While the front was on fire, they snuck in from the back door. Do all of your plans involve violent distractions? Arthur asked Rabia. As often as goddamn possible. Refuge and audacity, she replied, getting out of the shark but leaving it running. The large boulder they had placed on the van's gas pedal had done its work beautifully, but they got the sense it would be the only agent to stay in one piece. There was no shortage of guns between them. Rabia carried her red shotgun, a machete at her back, and an obscenely large hand cannon with a scope 
that would look comical had she not had the cold stare emanating from her tired face. DeWitt grabbed a rifle from her weapon cache and met no protests. Robbie handed Arthur a small pistol. After how you handled your own last night, I don't really trust you with one of these, she teased, looking at him affectionately. Don't get yourself killed. DeWitt and Arthur led the way, feverishly familiar with the city by their water-carrying path. Arthur was burnt out. The potency of the drug had kept him from the release of sleep, and when it had finally weaned, Robbie insisted on pumping Bob Dylan and Jefferson Airplane into the night. He had no idea how she was as ornery as she was today. The crazy bitch never seemed to sleep, and even now, despite being low on drugs, she raced forward without looking back. Her constitution was a gift from the gods, or a sordid deal with the devil. Neither would have surprised him. They had decided to raid in the morning when the slavers were still cradling their wounds. But why they had decided to do this hungover and burnt out from MDMA was anyone's guess. If that was the good-feeling drug, Arthur could not imagine what hell the guards were going through. They moved quickly and quietly towards the colonel's roost, but they were only halfway there when a guard yelled out, There is no one inside the van! So they picked up the pace, clinging to the walls as much as possible. It was only a matter of time before the guards fanned out. The terror throne was just blocks away, a tiny beacon for their journey. The colonel was not there, so they honed in on it. The angry yells of pissed-off guards drew closer. DeWitt's age was deceptive to how quickly he could move, but getting him to start was a chore. He held his rifle firm and close, the tip aimed low at all times. It had never occurred to Arthur that he fought in the war before it became an atomic theater. But seeing him now, it was easy to imagine a younger commissioner storming the beaches of a foreign land. DeWitt hugged a wall, then peeked out to the side, seeing the old fast food restaurant ahead of them. We run across one at a time, he said. When we're all there, we breach. Arthur clicked his pen. DeWitt charged across, then hugged the restaurant's wall nearest to the window that the emaciated man had climbed out of the day before. He looked out from his spot, then signaled that it was clear. Arthur ran next, then Robbia. The shouting drew nearer. They could see nothing inside from the window, save the bright primary colors of a counter. One by one, they climbed inside. The interior of the restaurant was mostly empty, the cash register, the gaudy furniture, and even most of the kitchen equipment had been pulled out of it, likely scavenged years ago. The little light that there was illuminated thick motes of dust. Only half of the restaurant was intact, the other half caved in, now the makeshift home of the colonel on top. The centerpiece to this old fast-food dining area was the emaciated man riddled with tumors, the large book still strapped to his back. He was holding an old, half-melted doll and a pink plastic toy brush. His eyes widened, and he clutched the doll close to his chest. Hand it over. We are federal agents, DeWitt started before the screaming began. No, the emaciated man screeched. You can't have it. The three were conscious of how close the guards were. This screaming was not helping. Listen up, you creepy fuck, Robbie said through her teeth. You are going to hand over what we want, or you'll find your teeth splattered on that goddamn wall. No, you can't take her, the man wailed, clutching the doll closer. What? No, um, sorry, Arthur said. We want the book, 
not the doll. Um, give us a book, okay? Oh, the emaciated man said, his sobs shortening. You can have the book. I hate this book. It's really heavy. And with that, he unstrapped the belts. Some of the guards could now be heard around the restaurant, but thankfully did not come in. The sound of heavy footsteps drummed on the collapsed ceiling. He's here, the emaciated man whispered. Be quiet. He doesn't know that I have her. He'll be furious, he continued, handing the oversized book to DeWitt. They were surrounded. Moving like a lithe express train, Rabia was within inches of the emaciated man in a breath. She pressed her shotgun firmly against the doll and looked over her aviators directly into the man's eyes. Go outside and lead those swine away from us, or the doll gets a hole in its chest large enough to stick your fist through, she whispered. Rabia, you can't solve all of your problems with a diversion, Arthur said. The hell I can't, Rabia responded with no love in her eyes. We start drawing gunfire now, and we'll be surrounded before we get anywhere close to the shark. She turned her attention back to the emaciated man, clutching the doll to his heart. Do you know what a triple-odd buckshot can do to plastic? I'll do it, I'll do it, just don't hurt her, he said, wild desperation in his eyes. He lowered the doll slowly to the ground and stepped away from it. Arthur, get that strap to your back, we leave on my signal, Rabia ordered. DeWitt held the book to Arthur's back, and the two of them worked to get the leather, tongue-like latches around him. When it was secured, Rabia, with her red shotgun, motioned to the emaciated man to leave from a window. The agents gathered together near an opposite window. Arthur and DeWitt tentatively awaited Rabia's command and their chance to flee. The emaciated man climbed out of the same window they had come in, and then immediately screamed for help. There's a bad woman down there, he shouted. A very bad woman! The silence that followed was suffocating and then shuffling feet broke as its guards raced toward the old diner. Steps hammered above them, drowned out by the booming voice of the colonel. Bring me her head so that I may fuck it. We should go now, Rabia said, and then she jumped out of the window. As soon as they were all out, they ran as fast as they could, legs pumping furiously. The first guard they saw held a tire iron in his one and only hand. Buckshot erupted from Rabia's shotgun, and the tire iron fell to the ground before the body followed. Arthur could hear the bitter spray of bullets from DeWitt's rifle, but he couldn't see their target. He ran without thinking. Soon they were at the corner across from the colonel's roost, and Arthur dared to look behind him. The colonel was on his throne, his waddle wagging back and forth. It's the IRS, he bellowed, pointing his sausage finger at Arthur. Bring me their heads and I'll share one. Arthur was jerked forward. Robbie had grabbed him by the tie, yanking him back into momentum. We are going to die, he thought, but followed her as fast as his shoes could kick the ground. DeWitt turned a corner and was out of sight for a split second. Arthur heard the sharp crack of gunfire, and when he turned the corner himself, saw a guard clutching his bleeding belly with both hands. They continued to run. The sound of heavy footsteps thundered behind them. The further Arthur jammed forward, the closer they seemed to be. Another corner turned and four guards stood at the ready, each clutching a different firearm. Rabia reeled back and pushed the boys in a different direction. Their cover of old pre-war buildings was thinning. 
Soon they would be in the field of cages, which would present a whole new set of challenges. With Robbie pushing them forward, Arthur was now in the lead. DeWitt began to slow. Arthur ran to the edge of another building and turned the corner. A guard greeted him on the other side. His jagged, rotten, fang-like teeth showed from behind an open gash of a mouth. He pointed his rifle directly at Arthur. Guns go up? Don't frown. Fall down. As he fell backward, Arthur raised his pistol and squeezed off half a dozen bullets. To his surprise, one hit the man in the shoulder, causing him to shriek with pain. Before he could retaliate, Rabia had turned the corner and shot off around. The guard's jaw exploded into stains of blood and teeth around him, giving Jackson Pollock a run for his money. The weight of the book and its large flat surface prevented Arthur from rolling over. He was like a turtle, vulnerable and belly up towards any birds of prey sharp enough to spot a kill. They were in a narrow alleyway, the decaying walls of old buildings squeezing them in. DeWitt had joined them, a grim look on his face. The old man let his rifle fall to his side, caught by a shoulder strap, and offered his hands to his subordinate. Arthur was pulled up to the sound of gunfire. DeWitt fell to the ground. A guard had caught up from behind. Robbie fired three shots into his chest, and he fell to the ground next to the man he'd just killed in cold blood. Arthur clicked his pen, expecting Form 22B, Violent Incident in the Workplace, to be on his phantom clipboard. Blood had swelled out of DeWitt's back, mixing with dirt to form a grim mud. Robbie's cries to move on faded into the background. Arthur was witnessing the death of the highest IRS official he had ever had the pleasure to meet. DeWitt's wrinkled hands drew Arthur close. Leave. I'm old. We must audit this place. Get the book home. And, with a labored breath, added, Please, file an HR complaint against Boyd for me. Tears welled in Arthur's eyes, threatening to consume his sight. The sounds of frantic footsteps grew louder and louder. I'm sorry, sir, Arthur said, but I'm an auditor. That's just not my department. A smile fanned across the old man's face for the last time. That a boy, DeWitt said with understanding. Then he had the decency to die. Robbia spun Arthur about face, terror dominating her eyes. Get moving, you dirty bastard, she said. The pain of a side stitch and lactic acid threatened to slow him, but still he ran. He followed Robbia as the sound of hurried feet clamored behind them. They were in the field of cages. Arthur hoped that the guards would not dare fire off shots at them here, that they would not want to risk damaging their products. But the contrary was immediately confirmed. Shots rang past Arthur, and the slaves around him fell to the floors of their cages in cover. They weaved between the cages, doing their best to confuse their pursuers and avoid being shot. Arthur had an irrational fear that turning around to see how many slavers were in pursuit would somehow bring them closer. They passed his former cage. His legs threatened to shut down. The book behind him weighed on his aching spine. He was dizzy with pain. But there was no choice but to sprint. They had cleared the field and were met with a grisly, rusted, mutant car fleet. The worst feeling in the world had managed to bloom in Arthur's mind. Hope. Rabia rocketed towards the shark, its engine still pumping out toxic fumes. That's when they saw him. 
On the hood of the car was dumb Dick Rick, a cruel smile on his stupid face, and a giant shotgun in both his hands. Looky here, the pretty black. But before dumb Dick Rick could finish his sentence, Robbie fired two shots, and then Rick had no dick. Dumb Rick fell forward and writhed on the ground like a live wire. Robbie booted him in his bloody groin just for good measure. Don't you ever wink at me again, you dumb Nazi fuck, she yelled, and then promptly got in the car. As soon as Arthur joined her, she slammed down on the accelerator. Arthur lurched forward, scrambling to unlatch the book so he could put on his seatbelt. Old habits. They sped backwards, wheels screeching, as Arthur managed to remove the book. There was a single, solitary bullet hole in the front of the thick tome. Arthur opened its pages and found that the bullet had tunneled to a stop at the back cover. When he looked up, he saw about a dozen slavers, half of them firing madly, the others scrambling to mount mutant cars of their own. His view quickly changed as Robbie turned the steering wheel. She switched gears and they roared forward. Arthur clutched the book to his chest at the same time securing his seatbelt. Engines roared. Robbie smiled. About the author. M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dustmice. Available on all streaming services and dustmystartbandcamp.com.